Well, I don't know if you've noticed in recent times, but in the last few years especially, there has come kind of a a fascination, if you will, with monarchies, with kings and queens and kingdoms. You know, maybe it even kind of found its initial pathway through Downton Abbey. That was a show that significantly looked at aristocracy and looked at loyal subjects, and it was fascinating. It became quite a, a trend and kind of a cultural interest. And there is show after show now, in case you don't realize it, that are shows about monarchy. There's Rain, White Queen, Outlander, Versailles, all sorts of them, Tudors. And and we could go through lots of them, and you have to ask, what is, our, what is our kind of excitement about this? We don't live in a monarchy. We don't even understand monarchy, do we? And yet we're thrilled about them. In fact, they have shows for monarchies for every kind of taste and every kind of interest and every level of kind of content, don't they? So one of the number one shows right now is the show Victoria. Victoria is on PBS. It tells the story of Queen Victoria in the 1800s and her kind of rise, her walk through being a monarch and what it was like. And it's by PBS, so anyone can watch it, right? I mean, it's a show for everyone. Then you go a little bit higher into the, well, I'm not sure everyone can watch it. You get to places like The Crown. The Crown's on Netflix. It tells the story of, of Queen Elizabeth, of our current queen, actually in, in England. But again, this thing, it, people are waiting for months all sorts of articles about who will play her, what will it be each season. Season three just came out. And then, for those that want to know about kings and kingdoms in a very raunchy, raw, real way, there has been Game of Thrones. Well, you're very serious this morning. I really thought that would get more of a response. Nobody wants to admit that they watch Game of Thrones. I always love when I talk to somebody who watch it. Yeah, I watch it. You know, season one had some really bad stuff, but it got better after that. It's very funny to listen to people. It's interesting though to me beyond that is that we have a fascination with this idea of kings over countries, of good and evil over fighting and resisting those things that are wrong and hostile and oppressive. That's really the story of kings and queens and kingdoms. And I tell you that because when we go back to the times of scripture, that's what fills the earth. And really for most of history and most of the world, that's what fills the earth. And so it's important that we begin there as we enter into Advent because we're going to look. We're going to be in Matthew's account. There are four accounts of Jesus' life. We're going to look just in chapter 2, but we're going to begin looking at the backdrop of all this and really specifically at one king. And with that in mind, we're going to take it up in Matthew 2. And Matthew writes this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Now we're gonna come back to what all that means. The Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now next week, Thad's gonna look at the Magi. That's a particular group and we'll get kind of a broader picture of what it means for the Magi to come. We're gonna look at different people's response. Let me just say this as a side note, just as a historical accuracy point. If you ever have nativities, many people do in their homes, oftentimes the kings are there, you know, the magi, they're not even kings, they're magi. And guess what? They weren't there. So I just want you to know, your, your uh, little wonderful stable is wrong. So you're welcome. Thought I'd just help you. Merry Christmas. What you can see is they come later. I just want to reveal that to you in case you didn't know. I don't really know why and how the trend happened, but that's where we are. No extra charge. I'm just giving you that today. But where we're going to start is the time of King Herod. 
And biblically, we don't read a lot about Herod other than we know this maniacal part because he ends up wanting to kill all the children that are born at the time of Jesus and does. But I wanna take you back into Herod's journey as king. Maybe if we examine Herod, what might we learn? And so let me take you back. Herod is a son of a man who basically had gotten in good with the emperor of the Roman Empire and given some oversight to, to Judea, which is really the area around Israel. It, Israel's divided up, but you'll get the general idea. It's around there. And so when he was getting older, he began to ask the Roman leaders, will you give my sons a place in this? And two of his sons in particular were given areas to oversee, kind of a governorship. Now it will change over time, and Herod is one of them. Now what happens in Herod's movement into this time is lots of confusion and difficulty. So as he begins to oversee all that's going on in Judea, he begins to take taxes from people and find there are rich areas and he's doing very well. Well, Rome takes notice and goes, hey, he's getting lots of money, we should take some of that. And they particularly target the areas that are more wealthy and they take from that. Now Herod, being a, an opportunistic man and a, really a shrewd man, starts to find other ways to protect himself and begin to build up, if you will, his kingdom. And it's not long after that, he's actually declared king of Judea by the Roman leaders. But what I want you to understand is he deals with all sorts of things along the way. He has opposition. His very mother-in-law has a son of her own that she wants to be given some power, and she now begins to vie with Rome that they would let her son, her own son take over, kind of oust Herod. He gets wind of the plot. He goes to Rome to try to influence them to tell them not to, and when he's not sure what will happen, guess what he does? He puts out a hit on the young man, and he's killed. Not exactly your nicest move, does it? Now, what do you see about Herod already as king? Who does he look out for? Herod. He's all about himself. He is protecting and working. Now make no mistake, he's shrewd in this. He goes back to Rome, he interacts. There's one point in time where two different leaders are overseeing and they're both vying for it, Augustus and Antony. And he aligns with Antony and guess who loses? Antony. Now he's smart and he realizes I'm in trouble. So he starts to go back to Augustus. He says, guess what? I, where we are in Judea is a perfect pathway for Rome to move things through. I will do all these extra things to help you. And he wins Augustus over in a shrewd way, keeps moving ahead. You see how he's doing things to help himself. That's the way life moves for him. It's said of, of uh, Herod that he actually would dress up in common clothes and go out into the villages kind of to get a pulse on how people viewed him and how they viewed his reigning. And when he found things out that were concerning, he found ways around them. There were times where he simply eliminated people. There were times where he helped. For example, one of the areas was going through a pretty significant famine. They were really in trouble. And he provided all this resource for them. Now, did he do it to help them? No, he did it to get their allegiance and to pull them back. That's how Herod worked. He did everything to prepare and work. Herod was also a builder. If you ever, if you go to Israel, even in this day, you could go to a, an area called Masada, and there's this large fortress built on this mountain area of, in Masada, which is very near to the Dead Sea. Herod built this as a stronghold to protect himself and his kingdom. He built another massive one called the Herodian that is literally in Bethlehem. 
In fact, beautifully, it's, it's ironic, actually. The Herodian is, was considered one of the most remarkable buildings in the ancient world. To this day, there are rocks that were built there that we cannot move with modern machinery and have no understanding of how they move them. That's crazy, isn't it? But that's the Herodian. Now, just as a side note, by the way, so you have the Herodian built up next to the manger where Jesus is born. Not right next to, but in the shadow of. I just want you to see the contrast even in this. It's powerful. And, and I failed to mention as well that Herod is actually called an Idumean, which means he's a descendant of Esau. For those of you who don't know, there's Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau's the older and is intended to be the, basically the birthright carrier. Some things happen where he gives it up, Jacob gets it, and actually there's a prophecy that says the older will serve the younger. So Herod knows this in his side. Now, he's also decided he'll live like a Jew, but it's only political. He picks and chooses how to live like a Jew so that he can ultimately kind of get what he wants. So he has some things, he has people be circumcised, he doesn't follow other things. People are back and forth about him all the time, but that's how he lives. He lives this life for himself. By the way, just to give you the pinnacle of what he does, even before we get to what he does to these kids, one of his wives begins to go rogue on him. Guess what he does? Takes her out too. Needless to say, Herod's not a good dude, is he? I just want you to get a picture of this because Herod, this is the Herod we're talking about. This is the way monarchies were and this is often what people lived under. They saw kings as tyrannical, difficult rulers that oppressed people. That's what they viewed kingship as and that's how kingship was and that's how Herod lives. By the way, I forgot to mention one more thing. Rome eventually will give him Jerusalem it's kind of a crazy turn of events. They give him a whole other area and they then give him a new distinction. You, Herod, are king of the Jews. So what do you think he felt like when the Magi said, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Tell me what would be your posture when that happens. And remember, Herod's self-protective. His kingship is all about him. So we're gonna take it on and see what happens with how he responds. When King Herod heard this news, he was disturbed. It's kind of a soft word for it, isn't it? But who else is disturbed? All of Jerusalem. Now I tell you this and you look and you go, yeah, so okay, so this king is disturbed, he's upset. What does that have to do with me? And, and interestingly, the word disturbed, literally, it's a picture of a, think of a water body that's just smooth. And then all of a sudden the winds come and the tumult comes and it gets turned up and it's beginning to stir. That's the picture. It's this picture of your life is going the way you want it to. And then it gets turned up and churned and it suddenly puts you in upheaval. You, you know, that's how it's described when Jesus comes, by the way. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, right into the early church, goes back to a prophecy I believe it's in Haggai, and it says that when Jesus comes, when Messiah comes, God will basically shake that which can be shaken, that that which cannot be shaken will remain. And then it's interpreted, meaning anything of this earth, anything that we put our lives into that's not worthy will get shaken loose when Jesus comes. The sheer mention of his name coming rattles Herod and shakes him loose. Now, I think in our first blush, we'd all look and go, listen, Herod's a 
maniacal king. He's a tyrant. We're Christians. That is not our story. Awesome. Thanks for telling us. Let's move on. So here's the hard part. As I've been studying this in the last weeks, and even when I began to pray and we began to talk about what to teach, something in this text stirred in me. And what hit me was, I think in a lot of ways I live to protect my own kingdom and my own life. Do you know I can do the right things for the wrong reasons? I can really help other people to advance my cause. I can really, when it comes to opposition that might thwart what I want to have happen, become scheming and diplomatical, diplomatic and shrewd to get what I want out of it. I can even bring about the destruction of others. Granted, I've not taken anyone's life. But it kind of hit me as, oh no. Is it possible in this story, as much as I don't want to relate to it, there's parts of me that can be troubled at the coming of Jesus. Let me make it more personal for all of us because I don't think I'm alone in this. I don't know if you, you realize this, there's a phrase that was common, at least when I was growing up, they used to say that a man's castle is his home, that the man is king of his castle. And I don't even mean this as a sexist thing. We could say that a woman's home is that she's the queen of her castle. But it comes from something that happened in the 1700s. In England and in Wales, as people were feeling the king overbearing on their homes, the prime minister declared that the king could not enter people's homes, be it a small hut or a great castle, because every man's home is his castle and he is the king of his castle. So do you think that might translate to us today? In fact, let me even put it this way. Our roots leaving England to build America, just as a nation, were to leave oppressive monarchies. But here's the deal. What we said was monarchies are bad and we'll be our own kings and queens. We didn't realize there's true kingship. So what I wanna explore with you today, have you considered today, is is it possible as we enter this season of Christmas that Jesus wants to show up as king and stir the parts of us that look out for ourselves, promote ourselves, protect ourselves, or even utilize Jesus as a transaction. Jesus is my king because he gets me further ahead. And let me qualify it this way. You realize when Jesus came as a baby, he never demanded to be king. He just was. He does not enter our lives and go, you better make me king. The king's here. The king came. The king didn't come to use us and promote his own way. The king came incredibly self-sacrificing to die for us in our despair to make us new and renewed people of the kingdom. Wow. Could it be in this Advent season, God wants to renew that or deepen that in us? Maybe, in fact, what we should consider is trying to be king or queen is an endless, empty pursuit. Take Herod, for example. You realize with everything he gained, he had more to protect and more to defend. And all that left him was incredibly restless and agitated and anxious. Because the more he had, the more he had to watch out for. 
Could it be in our own lives where we live to reign, live to control, live to rule, live a certain way that what's happening is it's actually destructive to us because God didn't make us to be kings and queens of our castle. He made us to be subjects of the king. In fact, I would say it this way. Surrendering to the king is a purpose-filled adventure. The best adventure we'll have is becoming subjects of the king who live now to purposely bring about his kingdom on earth. And no maniacal king, no tyrannical king, but the most just, loving, incredible, fair, merciful king in all of history. Now, I wanna give you some handles on this today, maybe a picture that would help you, not just me talking about my struggles, but let's look at someone, uh, kind of a fellow journey person, someone who's on it, that can be a hero to us in how they're living. Nick Foles, in case you don't know who he is, was the, uh, had been quarterback for Philadelphia a few years ago, actually led them to the Super Bowl. They won the Super Bowl under him, had very high moments. In this last season, he's been with Jacksonville. He got injured and broke his collarbone. And in one particular time, he's kind of been in a decline and even not performing well as a quarterback. He's asked a question about his faith because we love to applaud the people that do well, don't we? We love it when Christians succeed and they go, I give all the glory to Jesus. We're like That's what the Christian life is. It's always winning and getting the glory because God will make us little junior kings and queens. That's what he wants to do. I want you to listen to what he says in response to the question about his faith. This is just a news conference a few weeks ago. Take a look at the screen. Though week after week, not playing, you're a football player. You're watching this young kid go out. This Minshew mania is going crazy. I know you're a man of faith, and I know you're trying, but you're also human. I mean, ever any doubts coming up in your mind as you go through that? No, that's where, you know, right when, this, right when I felt this thing break and I was going into the locker room, I just realized, you know, I just realized, God, this wasn't exactly what I was thinking when I came to Jacksonville. Obviously, you come here and you want to create a culture and impact people. But at the end of the day, I was like, God, if this is the journey you want me to go on, I'm going to glorify you in every action, um, good or bad. And, you know, I still could have joy in an injury. Um, and that, that's people hear that and say, that's crazy. But it's like when you believe in Jesus and you, you go out there and you play, and that's, that changes your heart. And you only understand it when, you know, that purpose in your life, just like when I hoisted the Lombardi Trophy. The reason I'm smiling is my faith was in Christ in that moment. I realized I didn't need that trophy to define who I was because it was already in Christ. And that's my message when I play. Same thing happens when I get injured. We tend to make this so much about us as human beings. We tend to make it about us as athletes. It's not about us. It really isn't. If you make it about yourself, you're probably going to go home at night, lay your head on your pillow and be very alone and very sad. And then hopefully someday you can find that purpose in your life because my purpose isn't football, it's impacting people. And I, my, my ministry happens to be the locker room. And I've been able still to get to know people, get to know these guys through an injury. Though I might not be playing, that is difficult from a fleshly perspective, but from the spiritual perspective, from my heart, I've been able to grow as a human being to where I feel like I'm at a better situation here as a person than I was before because of the trial I just went under. And I know that's a sermon in itself, but that's how I go through life. And the good Lord's been there to, you know, it's not always about prosperity. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I believe if you read the word of God and you understand it, there's trials along the way, but they equip your heart to be who you are. Wow. I love what he says. When I hoisted the Lombardi trophy, it's not what made my life important. I have identity. When I'm sitting with an injury and I'm now living life in the locker room, man, that's where God's using me right now. Because I'm his. 
Did you hear what he said too about the idea of when you make it about yourself? He said, you will hit, your head will hit the pillow and you will be alone. And you will never be satisfied because it is an endless, empty pursuit. But man, a surrendered life to Christ, wow. What might happen in this Christmas season if we entered today, the first Sunday of Advent, and this is scary but beautiful, to say to Jesus, you know what? Jesus, show up as king. You go ahead and you trouble and stir my life. Whatever it takes for me to let go of the things that need to be shaken. That I'll stop trying to be king or queen over all that happens. I'll stop trying to control what's going around me. I'll stop trying to promote myself and put myself at the center. Instead, I'll respond to the king. (laughs) We're children of the king. You get that, don't you? And what a king we have. I mean, a king that left heaven to come to earth to meet us in our most despairing, desperate, unsolvable place. We could never atone and account for our sin. Dies on our behalf, rises and gives us new life so you and I can be people of the kingdom. You see, wherever you're planted right now, when you go to work, when you're living in your house and with your family around you, when you're working and just enjoying the hobbies you do, recreating with the people you do, going to the events you do, you are an ambassador of the kingdom and a loyal subject of the king. And just like with Nick, in the high points and in the low points, God will use you to advance his kingdom. What I'm inviting you to today is kind of to freshly say in this season, God, I surrender. I surrender to you as king. God's not demanding it, but he's right there. And by the way, make no mistake, if you don't surrender to Jesus, he's still king. It's not contingent upon us approving. I just want to be clear about that. He is king. He's the only just king, the only merciful king, the only righteous king. That's an adventure. Man, let's stop trying to live to build our own kingdoms. Let's ask God to stir and trouble us that we'd actually say, you know what, I want to be subject to the king. I got to set this aside and live for you. I want to pray for us as we enter into this. And then we're going to kind of put an exclamation point on it, have an opportunity to respond through communion and worship. But let me pray for us with this in mind. God, I am asking in this day, as we enter Advent freshly, I pray just like it was when Jesus first came that our anticipation of his coming would be revelatory. Lord, I am asking in your mercy that when, with Jesus coming, it would trouble us where we've kind of protected and established our own ways, where we live like Herod and like Jerusalem, subjected to our own kingship or to the kingship of others. And Lord, we want to let go of that and help us to discover in your vulnerability how you came to be king. God, let us begin to believe instead of saying our response to unhealthy kings is to be our own, to believe you as a good and perfect king and reveal to us what it means to be your sons and daughters, your subjects in your kingdom. Move among us, Lord, in your name. Amen.